Hey team, welcome to another episode of the Intentional Agribusiness Leader Podcast. The podcast where we actually explore the minds of leaders from all around the agriculture and agribusiness space about what it takes to lead intentionally in this industry today. My friends, if there's some value in here for you today, we ask you to subscribe to the podcast, share this with someone who needs to hear the message of what it takes to be intentional. Let's get into the show. Hey team, welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Agribusiness Leader Podcast. This is Mark, your host. I'm on here with Anna from Verdesian. Is it Cardoz? Is that how we say your last name? It is Cardoz, yep. I'm not trying. I was going to overcomplicate it and try to get real fancy, but uh, I think we got- just there for flair. (laughs) Go with with the phonetics on that one. So (laughs) go like it says. All right, uh, Anna, welcome and thanks for being here. This is uh, going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me today. You bet. What does it mean for you to be intentional? You know, I think there are a lot of buzzwords out there and I think intentional is one of them, right? We're going to get into this in a little bit. Culture is another one of those big buzzwords that people use. But when you think about being intentional, it is in my mind doing something with purpose or with a greater kind of goal in mind. So you know, I'm not just going to go through the motions because that's what somebody says I'm going to do. I want to think about the purpose or the end goal of the task at hand or the project that we're working on. And also really thinking about the goals and the purpose of not just the company, but how I want to operate as an individual, how I want to operate as a leader, how I want others in my team to operate, whether that's with, you know, personal life, moral compass, kind of goals and and purpose that we want to achieve in our in our lives in those different sections. And so when I think about that intentional, it's really going with purpose. And perhaps purpose is just a synonym <laughs> for intentional, but one that I, I like to think of. What is what is the goal? How does this positively impact me, the company, the group that I'm leading, the people that I'm working with? What is the positive impact or purpose that this serves for them? And then how can we take that and, and execute um, either the tactics or the plan or what strategies can we put in place to make sure that those things happen? Mm-hmm. It's a great answer. And, and when I think one of the things I really like about it, as you define this as purpose, what is the purpose behind what we're doing is that it takes time and intention to sit back and kind of broaden the view and think about, well, what is the purpose? Why are we doing this? Why is this meaningful, important, essential even in some cases uh, for, for whatever it is that we're trying to create? So I think that's a, that's a fantastic answer. Yeah, talk absolutely. To, yeah. So to, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, we were just talking off the recording about this a little bit, right? Um, what is important to you about attracting and retaining good talent? How do you apply intention to the attraction and retention of good people. Certainly, you know, looking at the landscape today, there is a big need for that good talent out there. You look you look at or you talk to any agribusiness whether it's at the retail level, the distributor level, the, you know, corporate level in different sectors, technology, uh, suppliers, etc. People are looking for good talent and good talent is really recognized in the industry and I think have a lot of different offers and opportunities at their fingertips. And so when I look at my team and Verdesian as a company, there's people that I want to make sure we attract or that don't leave, right? And so, you know, one thing that I'm always thinking of is 
as a leader in the company, being very transparent. I never want to promise somebody something that's going to happen or sell them on something that isn't necessarily true. So being really transparent, helping them understand what the expectations are, what the opportunities for growth are, what the challenges of a company are, but what are also the really unique and great things and what impact can you as an individual have. So that if those things all sound really good and exciting, we can continue on in the conversation. I think also ensuring that they understand that we have their back, right? And so the purpose, the goals, the kind of things that they want to achieve as an individual, we can talk about those and I'm going to have your back and make sure that we work on those together. And that whether I tell you things that are hard to hear sometimes that you need to know to get better, to reach those goals and that purpose that you want to serve, or we're sharing those really exciting things of, Hey, you're really growing and developing here in my mind, kind of operating in that instance, we can attract and retain that good talent. You know, there's, there's all of the HR things that my HR person would probably kill me for saying that, you know, those matter, but every company has those those at varying levels. But how can you really be that leader or that group of leaders at a company that people say, I want to be on that bus, right? I want to be in that, in that journey together. I want to figure it out. It may not be my dream position, but those are the dream people I want to work with. And that's what I strive to create with the other leaders here at Verdesian to make sure that people want to get on our bus and that they're going to stay. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic answer. I think transparency is such an important piece of it because one thing that often happens is it seems like no matter what we do, your field staff, the field staff grows disconnected with what we call the head shed, right? The, the, yeah. seat, the decision makers. And they're in every organization, almost every, or every organization we've ever worked with from a consulting perspective, there's a disconnect. It's an us versus them. Yeah. And, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that way. I think there's a natural tendency. Did, you let me know if I'm, if I'm on the same track as you. So I'm thinking about transparency as a way of setting expectations. Right. Yes. Here's where we're going. This is what we want. These are the expectations, and it's not a perfect world. I think we just have that conversation. Like it's not perfect. <laughs> there will be no perfect way of getting there. But if we have everybody just pulling in the same direction, I think people will forgive a lot more. Yep. When things don't stack up exactly as we had hoped, and they feel included as to why we're making the decisions that we're making, or why these changes are being implemented in the way that they are. Right. And. I think a lot of companies as they grow in scale struggle with what level of transparency to have. And to your point, really struggle. I think COVID was really hard for this of making that field team feel like they are a part of that that group, that decision-making, et cetera. And I work remotely myself. And so even though I'm part of the head shed, I guess, sometimes, um, even still it can feel disconnect because I'm not in the office having those conversations or, you know, I'm hearing information secondhand. Yeah. But yeah, that transparency piece really helps. I I think the looking back of how did we get here? What were the mistakes? And it's okay. Like you said, it's not a perfect world. We make mistakes. Everybody does. The forecast was off. The production capacity was more um, constrained than we anticipated it was. It didn't rain for three months. And so applications have changed, right? Like there are things so out of our control in agriculture that we have to be able to just understand how we got to where we are today and what we can do moving forward. Helping people just feel like they're a part of the conversation or they have that seat at the table 
goes a really long way. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, if we can just remember on occasion that we're on the same team. Yep. Right. My wife and I had an argument last weekend. <laughs> Full transparency. It's not always perfect. <laughs> and it was just, it got to a point where it's just like, this is dumb. Yeah. Not irrelevant, but we're on the same team. We love each other. We're here to make this ultimately be what we want it to be. Let's get on, let's get back on the same page about what we're trying, trying to create. Yes, exactly. You know, life is going to throw some curveballs, but we're not against each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I think you could apply that to just about every other relationship that you have, right? I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about culture. Uh, you already alluded to it. And it's what, certainly one of the questions that we like to ask on this podcast. Culture can be a buzzword. My, my take is that, and this is based on my observation, I think a lot of people, leaders talk a good game around creating culture. They have a lot of meetings. They spend a lot of money trying to decide what culture is going to be. Execution maybe isn't always as good as it could be. That's my take. What's your take on what it, what's required to build intentional culture? Yeah. You know, it's one that's, it's an interesting thing because culture, like you said, I think the smaller the company, the easier it is to build and protect that culture and to set out as a leadership executive team and say, here are the core pillars that we want, right? And a lot of them tend to be very similar. You know, you want to do what you say you're going to do. You want to be honest. You want to be easy to do business with. You want to be all of these things, right? And so I think what's the most important is as an executive team, because culture really does start from the top. I think you have to set out what are the the non-negotiables, right? What are the three to five things that every person in the company needs to be able to get on board with, live and breathe with, and be something that we share and really enforce is such a harsh word, but really kind of make sure that you're actually doing it, right? And and protecting Mm -hmm. it and, and living out those cultural values. And I think there are times where as companies grow and scale or go through those executive changes, there's an opportunity for the culture to be reset. And, you know, frankly, Verdesian is in one of those instances where we have a new leadership team and it's really exciting. And um, our new CEO, she is fantastic and coming in with really unique experiences. And I can already see some of the cultural shifts that she's implementing and as an executive team to really make sure that the whole organization is feeling really confident in marching the same direction and really being able to comfortably kind of live and breathe those values every day and understand the greater, I keep coming back to the word purpose, but really understanding the greater purpose that we're, we're working towards as a company and knowing that the rest of the organization supports those values and supports those um, kind of cultural, cultural sides of things. The company I came, I was at before Verdesian was an agricultural technology company. And, you know, I was very early stage with them. And so there were less than 10 people. So it makes it really easy to have that culture. And they did a really fantastic job of protecting that as much as humanly possible as they scaled up in size and really making sure that, you know, in the interview process, we asked those questions. We kind of hit hard to uncover if they could live 
in a world of the same cultural values. And so I try and do that here at Verdesian too, is making sure that we are all aligned on what that culture, what those values are. And Mm -hmm really kind of sussing that out with people too, as they're interested in joining the company is, do you align with these cultural values? And if you don't, that's okay. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you, but it may mean that you're not the right fit for this company. It's okay. Not everybody belongs on the, on the, on the bus, so to speak. Yep, that's right. That's okay. Not everybody's going to jive with the color of our bus or (laughs) what what kind of fuel we burn in our bus and what we do and, you know, where where the bus is going. That's okay. Right. They don't need, but when we're firm in the culture, when we're firm in our values, we tend to attract, I I think people that, that are also uh, resonant with those values. Yeah. And the company I came to before Verdesian even had every new hire read two books. And it was those two books kind of explained the company's culture. And I don't know if they still do that now that they're even bigger since I've departed. Yeah. But I always thought that was really cool. You know, that's it helps mm-hmm. them explain and understand kind of how the company was founded and what they're set out to do. And so I, I think those little things too can make a really big difference in having that intentional culture and also making sure that you are of maintaining that culture throughout the different sizes and personnel changes. Yeah. I was, I was listening to a podcast with, um, it's called the Ben, the Benham brothers. And they, uh, they're a couple of uh, Christian business leaders, business coaches. They built up kind of their, um, their empire, so to speak. Now they share their models with other people. They also talk about parenting. And so I, uh, and, I, and I think of parenting, this is because I've mentioned this on the show many times uh, by now, uh, a quote by Danny Meyer. Uh, and Danny Meyer, uh, who is like the founder of Shake Shack and several other very successful restaurants, well known for creating culture. I saw him speak on stage at Tony Robbins about five, six years ago. And he said that culture is like taking care of a newborn. So if you've raised a child, then you know what this is like. <laughs> if you've raised a child more than two days, you know what this yeah. is like. <laughs> So culture is like raising a newborn. You have to feed it 10 or 12 times a day. And when it craps its pants, you damn well better change it. Right? And that's yeah. what it's like. So the, to bring this back to the Benham brothers, what they talk about, there's the, the four stages of parenting. Okay? Uh, there's the babysitting phase the, at the very beginning. Right? The babysitting is what you do because otherwise they can't live or they won't live. <laughs> you have to get them through the, the next phase. And then as they get a little bit older... You know, maybe they get to be where they're a little bit more independent, walking around, becoming independent thinkers, developing their personalities. There's the referee phase. Okay. And I'm living in that phase right now. So I feel yeah, that very yeah. much. Do this. Don't do that. Watch out for this. Be safe. Don't touch the hot things, right? You know, it's all the, the refereeing and you're constantly guiding them. And then if we do that job well, then we get to move to the coaching phase. And this is fun. I'm here with my two... Uh, daughters who are 15 and 13, about to hit 16 and 14 right now. We're in the coaching phase. My 16-year-old, she's about to get her driver's license. I have, in the last two days, 30 vehicle listings that she has found of her (laughs) cars that she's like- (laughs) Well, Christmas is coming, Mark. Christmas is coming, right? And so anyway, it's but we're in that coaching phase, right? Because I'm, I'm coaching her to think, okay, well, what is the ideal car? What is the the car that you would you know love to have? And that may not be the car that you get right now, but it's okay to be in touch with what you do want to get and work hard. She works at Chick-fil-A uh, that you can you know work hard, save your money. And she's required. She has to put, when she gets paid immediately, she has to put 50% uh, away 50 uh, 10% goes to tithing fit and the other 40% goes into savings 
And she's only been working there a few months, but she has almost $1,000 saved up. I said, get used to having that. Get used to having that base because it just feels good to have that to fall back on when you need it, right? Get used to having that. She's like, what am I saving for? I said, once you get over $1,000, then we'll talk about it. Right now you're yep. saving to save. We're coaching, right? She doesn't like it. That doesn't matter. I don't care. We're coaching. Sometimes employees are the same way, right? As we're trying to coach, like we go through these culture phases, we got to babysit it in the beginning. And I think you always have to babysit it and defend it to, to an extent. Then we got a referee. Hey, this is how we show up. This is what it looks like to respect our core values. This is what it doesn't look like. People that don't do that don't get to be on the bus, right? And now, but then we get to be in the coaching phase. Now we're really going somewhere. They're starting to be independent with it. And that leads us to the partnership phase. We're, we're a partner and those people will defend your culture to the level that you would as the leader. I think those, that, that was such a cool analogy um, along the lines of this, um, this topic about what does it look like to build intentional culture? You know, just be aware. I mean, if you don't do these things, it will go away. It will fight you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think to your point, you know, the, the referee stage and the coaching stage and really finding out who are those people that want to either initiate some of those cultural changes, live by those cultural values and, and continue to defend them and implement them alongside of you is a really cool experience. And I think I've gotten to see that over my tenure at all of the companies I've worked for and have really seen different ways to do those different stages. And it's been fun to learn and grow and take some of those into how I want to do that as a leader in a company now moving forward. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about you. And I'm interested in your take as a, as a young VP in you know executive leadership role, uh, young female leader in the ag industry. That's not exactly the most common thing that I run across all the time, uh, especially as a, in the millennial uh, age group. Uh, what's been the biggest hurdle that you've had to overcome in your leadership trajectory so far? Yeah. You know, it's, it is sometimes a little jarring, right? I do have imposter syndrome sometimes where I'm the only person in my early thirties sitting in a room. Um, very often the only female, uh, sitting in the room. What's great about Rhodesian though, is there are a lot of female leaders at our organization. So there's been a lot of support and, and guidance there, which I haven't always had at other organizations. So kind of separate to that, that's been really neat to see at Rhodesian and how they're making it really attainable for, for all, all ages, all stages of life, all genders, et cetera, to really be successful. But for me personally, you know, one of the biggest challenges is I have a young family, right? I have a two-year-old daughter. Um, I have a husband who also works in a very, um, intense job. He is kind of the CFO of a, an early stage company. And so we both have demanding, demanding schedules. We both have demanding jobs and having, the the group understand that I can't always travel on a dime or that I do feel like I can get a similar value out of a Teams meeting or out of some of the new technology that we have versus feeling like I have to be there in person, which I think is just perhaps the fact that my generation grew up with more technology at our fingertips. And so that was a way to do it. But having them understand that, you know, I, I don't want to be gone for five nights in a row. That's just, I don't think that that's fair for my family, I don't think that that is really necessary. I don't always need to be there in person. I think there's a lot that can be kind of handled electronically or digitally. And so some of those challenges, I think, are are 
hitting me on a regular basis and one that I'm trying to help folks understand, especially as there may be predominantly male, they're predominantly in their fifties or, you know, older in life and, um, they're past that kid stage, or perhaps they didn't have a spouse who was working, um, in as demanding of a job and, and position. Um, you know, I think one of the other challenges that I have is fighting to show that I know what I'm talking about. Right. And yeah. there's a little bit, I, I encountered this in my very first job. I worked at John Deere right out of college and I will never forget this. We were at an event. This gentleman was asking me all these questions about a tractor, right? I grew up on a farm. I know tractors. Machines to me were very easy to figure out. Answering all these questions, talking through it. And he goes, I knew that. I just wanted to see if you knew what you were talking about. I said, (laughs) great, thank you. But would you ever ask a male counterpart that same question, even if he looked young? And so I struggle with that sometimes with people assuming that I don't know what I'm talking about or that I didn't grow up in the industry or that I haven't worked really hard to get where I am. Um, and so that can sometimes be a little bit demoralizing, right? Of mm-hmm. I have to, I feel like I have to prove myself a little bit more than some of my male counterparts. And I think that's just a nature of, of the business industry. I don't think that's unique necessarily to agriculture. But it is one that I see shifting and that's exciting to see, right? As I go to ag retail and there's more millennials, you know, my age range, or there's more um, women that are are in leadership positions at those uh, ag retailers and people who are understanding and, and female agronomists and that kind of culture shift within those organizations is changing. So I think be a little bit more um, welcoming to to those different kind of age ranges and genders and life stages. So I don't know if that answered your question. I feel like I got a little rambly in there, Mark, but. (laughs) And it's all good. So let's just unpack it a little bit, right? So at the, you know, at the onset, we're talking about having a young family, two people in executive roles. We live in a world that where we're in a crossover time, you're still working with people side by side who maybe came up in, in, in the, the 80s and 90s yeah. at, the, at the onsets of their career in the early 2000s where we didn't have Teams, you didn't have Zoom, we didn't have uh, Slack and other technology platforms or even really text messages where we could right. I was joking with somebody yesterday, said, remember when the phones were attached to the wall and they stopped ringing at five o'clock and, <laughs> and you could just do life, right? That was a world, that's pre-millennial, but <laughs> that was a world that we used to have. You know, right. that I grew up in. And so, in fact, I was just talking to somebody yesterday. One of my heroes in business is a guy, a guy by the name of John Paul DeJoria. And John Paul is in his 70s, okay? Maybe late 70s at this stage, for sure, early 70s. But he's founder of Paul Mitchell Hair Salons or Hair, hair Products and Patron Tequila. Amazing. Two iconic brands. He has, yeah. he has exited both of these businesses for multi-billions he doesn't have a computer or a cell phone. That's amazing. Can you imagine? So so that gives me anxiety. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it does. And, and it shows you what's possible with great communication, with true intention, with knowing what you stand for, with knowing what you're about, with actually delegating and really building up those people around you. Right. 
uh, so that they, they're, they're empowered to handle. And if, if it's important enough, it gets to him, but he's built out his teams and built out his system. So yeah, that gives a lot of people anxiety to think about doing it that way. And this is, I don't cite that as like, Hey, this is what old people used to do. No, I cite this as somebody who's massively more successful than you, than me, than probably most of the people listening to this podcast. And he was able to do all of that. Didn't even get started till he was almost 40. So this is only in the last 30 years that he's done all of this. Right. So from roughly 1994 until now that he's done all of this, right. And built, built so much. I mean, it started in the late eighties, but to really build without that level of tech. And so you can be a great executive and still have balance. That's my point. Yeah, no, I think that's really fair. And I think it's something that a lot of us struggle with now today too. And I think this is one of those things that can start to negatively impact a culture is it's really hard to turn things off. Right. And you talk about Slack, you talk about, um, the cell phones and everything. Like when I'm on vacation, I have one cell phone, my email still comes to it. Unless I turn off those notifications, unless I disconnect those specific apps, I still feel like I'm reachable, but then even still people have my phone number. They'll call me, they'll text me. They don't know my schedule as they shouldn't have to know my schedule. But, you know, Mm -hmm. like you said, in the old, in the old days, God, it makes me sound like, uh, ancient, <laughs> but you know, when my mom was in business and she had a desktop and she mm. would leave her office and the desktop stayed there. And so when she came home, she was able to be really present with us because she wasn't attached to her phone. And, you know, I, I think I recognize that too, with the expectations I have of my team, I sometimes have to remind myself, it's okay to not be attached to your phone or it's okay to not be attached to your computer or take it with you everywhere you go. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a, there's this fan, fantastic function. I don't know if you guys have found it yet on your iPhones and your uh, Android devices where you can actually turn the notifications off. So the little red numbers on your email and the little red numbers on your Facebook and your LinkedIn and Slack and whatever, you can make those go away. I've actually never done that, but I really should. You don't have to. That is a choice. If you're looking for having anxiety because there's 54 on, on the little red button on your email app, that's an option. You don't have to see that. You can just have it be there. I actually interviewed a guy here a while back who um, on, the, on the podcast, uh, Mike um, from uh, Nutrient, and he actually has three 20-minute blocks per day when he does email. Does all of his email really in smart. three... 20 minute blocks, it's in his calendar and people, and he's trained people to understand and respect over time. This is, you're going to get a response at whatever, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock and two o'clock and that's it, or whatever his time frame is. I don't know what it is, but you know, there, there are ways like that is optional. And so we can start to you know, you know be respect, be respectful at the end of the day of the, the people's need to be able to take care of their family. Now it does not negate the fact that we have to get results. And this is the part that I would stress if I was coaching millennials and I've coached a lot of them. So you get to have your work-life balance. You get to have your work from home. If that's the way your company is structured, you get to have whatever it is that you want, but you got to drive results. Right. That's it. Get the results and the rest is going to eventually take care of itself. You might have to fight some battles. You might have to prove yourself, but if you get the results, nothing else really matters. Right. Obviously yeah. maintaining culture and maintaining core values and maintaining the things. So, but those are some of the results. Right. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, okay. There was a lot there on the, on this culture question. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there was. In this cover, I think we could probably do the whole episode just around, uh, just around that stuff, just around the, some of the hurdles that we've overcome. I'm, I'm curious what, what advice would you lend? I know this is not on our list for today, but what advice would you lend to a young person who's maybe getting started taking on some early leadership roles and um, maybe they're 24, 25, 27, 30, coming into some of these stages, what would you share with them today? You know, I think some of the things that people have imparted on me that are really helpful that I I think would do well is one, be bullish about what you're good at, right? Like there are things that I know are my strengths and you don't need to downplay those. You don't need to pretend or, or be shy to talk about the fact that you've got some killer strengths and you can use those, you can grow in those and you can help others based on your strengths and have that confidence that you know what you're doing, but -hmm. also don't be afraid to ask for help and don't be afraid to share what you don't know. I think that when I was in my early twenties, I never wanted to say I didn't know anything. I thought that made it look like that I didn't belong or that I didn't earn where I was supposed to be. And it was my last company really that the CEO who I worked with, he really helped me understand that it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to say you don't know something. It actually makes you a better leader because you're showing that, you know, everyone can still learn and and there's things to grow with and and surround yourself with the people who can help you get there. Right. So mm-hmm. not being afraid to say you don't know or ask for help is another big thing that I think takes some people a little bit too long to realize some people never learn that, unfortunately, and and you can tell. So I think those two things are the biggest, biggest piece of advice. And then also, you know, work hard and ask questions. Um, if somebody asks you to do something, don't be afraid to ask why or don't be afraid to help, you know, have them help you understand, again, the intention or the purpose or why that is happening. Um because if they can't answer that question, maybe it's something that shouldn't be a focus or maybe it's something that we need to revisit to make sure that we can answer that why or or uncover a little bit more of the purpose of that. That's a beautiful answer. That's great advice. Thank you for, for going a little off script here today and talking about that. And for those of you listening, if you have young people working for you that are on your team, I would just kindly forward this episode along and share. And share some of the advice that they're that they're getting, and and up at the same rate. Like, there's probably some advice for you in there too. So pay attention. You might want to just rewind here about two minutes. <laughs> advice. So 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 that was great. I want I want to I want to riff with you just a little bit on this. So if yeah. you were if you were advising the 50 year old team leader on how to get more out of their young people generational differences. We've grown up in a different space. You know, I always joke when I'm presenting about uh, some of the, what, what caused the differences in generations. And I'm right in the middle of all this from an age perspective. So I feel very relevant. I've felt very relevant for a long time, speaking to both millennials and boomers as a very young kind of Xer slash old millennial. I don't know what they call them. <laughs> Cuspers. I think cusper was the word we used to use, right? I'm a cusp between the two. <clears throat> One of the things that comes up a lot, and when I think about 
those of us that grew up, say, in the 80s and 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s that are still in the workforce today, when we were kids, our parents didn't always know where we were. Okay. I mean, there, there was a, you, you might've been working on the farm and, and you're out there doing, but there was no, no, nobody was checking in with you all the time. Right. Uh, so, and, and if there wasn't work to be done, like you might be out exploring, you might be out with friends. Uh, you probably like let your folks know who you, where you were going or, or but maybe not for a lot of people, the answer to that is actually not, they didn't think like you were just gone. And then you were ex- you know, expected to come on, you know, be home before the lights come on, the street lights come on, so to speak, or if you're in the farm country, like just be home before dark. And so uh, we, we grew up in a world where we had time to go have some fun, screw off, break something, screw something up, have to solve that problem before dad found out and we got in trouble. Okay. Now I think about this, how I raise children, because we have six kids between my wife and I from 22 down to seven years old right now. And uh, and I think about my my 16-year-old who's a type 1 diabetic. I can look at my phone right now and I know exactly what her blood sugar is. Yeah. I can look at their phones right now. I know exactly where they are. <laughs> I just go and find my little app on my yeah. iPhone. I can see exactly where my daughters are with their cell phones you know, and so on and so forth. And so young people today now, since probably the mid to late 90s, have grown up in a world where most of your decisions have been guided. Most of your, your, your days were scheduled. You were told what to do, where to go and what, you know, and what was happening next. Mom put that schedule together for you. Dad put that schedule together for you. Somebody drove you to all these places. Boomers didn't have that. If you wanted to go to baseball practice when you were, you know, when you were uh, um, growing up in the seventies, like you probably took yourself, you know, I started riding my bike to school in fifth grade, five and a half miles. And, and and yet we had a hard time letting my daughters walk to school alone when they were in fifth grade. They're eleven. Yeah, <laughs> they're fully capable. But we we live in there's a, there's there's a little bit of a dichotomy that's going on here. So I, I share all that as a little bit of context, right? So those folks grew up in different worlds, and and so now we know that. But we're on the same team. So you know, knowing that and kind of knowing some of the values that you were brought up with, I'm curious how you would advise maybe your, your baby boomer or Gen Xers to, to get the most out of the relationships they have with their younger counterparts? You know, I think the biggest thing is in how we communicate, right? And so I think it's understanding that I, I always say I, I was born in the early nineties, 1990. And so people can do the math to see how old that makes me at this point, but you know, so a, a little bit of that, uh, medium age millennial, I guess. Um, the, the boomers are good at head math. So they knew right away exactly how many years that was. Yeah. See, in public <laughs> math, it's so hard for me. Um, but so I think understanding how we communicate to each other, right? Like I'm not part of the participation ribbon um, mm-hmm. group. Maybe that's because I grew up on a farm um, and my dad was very much against not, you know, coddling in that sense. But I think knowing that Direct communication is appreciated, but there's a way to be direct without being kind of like a parent figure where it seems like we're getting scolded, right? Like Mm -hmm. I am very much open to what can I be doing better? I love feedback. I think a lot of my age group wants to have feedback, but there's a very specific way and how to give it. And everyone's a little bit different. And I think not being afraid to ask 
hey, how do you like to receive feedback? How do you like to be communicated with? Anna, do you prefer texting or do you prefer email or do you prefer phone calls, right? And I will tell you, if it's before 5.30 p.m., you can call, you can get a hold of me any way you want. After 5.30, text me or email me because that's my family time. Between 5.30 and 7.30, I'm with my family. And that's kind of a non-negotiable for me. And so if there's an emergency, text me and I will get to you. But, you know, I, I think asking those questions, how do you want to be communicated with? Some millennials and even what's after me, Gen Z, is that after me? Um really don't like to be called. Like they get like nervous being on the phone, which I find a little entertaining, but you know, for some people that may be a really big deal. And so they need to be emailed. They want to be prepared for the phone call so that when you call them, they're not feeling like they're wasting your time. And so I think just asking those key communication questions, what do you like? How do you, how do you want to be reached? All of that is really helpful in getting the most out of uh, folks like me, because then you know, hey, between 5.30 and 7.30, no go zone. But otherwise, like 6 in the morning, I may not be awake, but sure, you can call me. Or like 8.30 at night, you can call me and I'll, I'll be there for you. Mm-hmm. I, I think also with that communication, making sure that you're not taking that parental type tone, which is easy to do, right? I even think mm-hmm. about, um, you know, there's younger employees that are now 10 years, 11 years younger than I am, interns who are still in college. And it's really easy to slip into that kind of parental tone if you have kids or just the the way that you are. And when a boomer does that to me, I instantly, like my my hackles rise, right? Like I, I, I don't respond well to it. I am like, no, you're not my dad. Like I don't want to, I don't want you to feel like you're disappointed in me. Like a parent would say like, we are in business. This is not, I don't know. I don't think I'm describing that very well, but taking that. I think you're describing quality. it perfectly, actually. <laughs> that's, that, that's great. Because, well, it, none, none of us respond well if we're spoken down to. Right. And right? it's, well, and especially in email, it's easy to take, that tone is really easy to come through if you, even if you don't mean it, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, would that same person respond well if you started speaking to them like your grandpa? <laughs> right. Let's put it, let's, let's flip it around. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm all about mentorship relationships and I would love to see more young people reach out to people who have been around the industry for a long time and be inquisitive. That may be the one piece that I would add on to your last answer that I would advise young people to ask a lot of questions, to be really inquisitive and, and, and learn because there's so much intellectual property walking around in the minds of people that have been a part of the industry as it's grown and expanded and changed so dramatically over the last 30, 40 years. Those people are still there. And I would, it's part of the reason that we're doing the podcast. I'm interviewing all ages in this podcast, but we can capture some of that knowledge before they retire. Right. Yeah. So I'm trying to make that into a, a format where people can go and learn from those people. So that'd be the one thing I would add uh, to that. But I think you are, you're spot on, right? Just don't, let's don't talk down to people, treat them like peers, treat them like, 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 like it's an equal playing field. And the, the advice on, on boundaries and work-life balance, which is, let's be honest, it's not balance. It's a blend. It's an integration, yes. right? And it's not unfair. And I've been teaching this for years. I've told my clients, I said, listen, uh, you can, these are the times that you can get a hold of me. This is how you communicate with me after, you know, five o'clock, shoot a text. We'll get back to you. And if it's at, if it's Friday after three o'clock central time, you're not getting me. 
Yeah. <laughs> from at three o'clock on Friday, I go, I, uh, this has changed a little bit in recent years, but I used to go get my kids from school. We'd go for ice cream. My goal, and this is my incentive for the week. Can I get my business and my work done to the point where I feel good taking off at three o'clock on Friday so that I can be present with my kids? Right. That's my incentive. That's That means more than money to me, right? And so if I can get myself there, now I, I, I still do that. I might do other things because my kids are older and they've got other activities and it's not always ice cream at three o'clock on Friday, uh, but it may be something else. Right. So yeah, I think that's a, that's an important takeaway. So, all right, I want to I want to keep moving. I want to get a few more gems out of you here before we run out of time. And we're definitely over the half hour mark, but that's fine. You guys can pause this, come back to it if you need to, or keep listening because Anna Anna's got a bunch of good stuff for you guys here today. Uh, we talked about biggest uh, biggest hurdle. What's been your biggest win as a leader? You know, I think the biggest win I've seen as a leader is getting people to realize that it could be me moment, right? Like I could be in that position or why am I limiting myself to wanting to be mid-tier when I could be growing? I could be doing more like it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you have to sacrifice all of these things or it doesn't mean that you have to have 35 years of experience before you can get to that that spot and I think having that aha moment of it could be me is really cool. And you can see that light bulb kind of go off into other individuals and they see that that potential is really there for them. Um, I also, you know, one one thing that I've had is I now manage people who are boomers, right? I, I have two people on my team who are in their mid to late 50s. Um, doesn't always probably feel good for them when a younger female comes in and is now they're boss. But I think the a, a cool moment I had with one of the guys on my team was I could see instantly in his demeanor changing of realizing that he is certainly stronger than me agronomically, but I have some strengths that he can learn from too. And when I saw him shift of, oh, wow, like some of your communication tax and how you communicate clearly, like I can be learning and having him start to ask me how I would approach those situations or what we can be doing to get a different result. That's been really cool, right? It's, you know, it's, it's not easy to come in and manage people that are 20 plus years, your senior, but to have that and, and have people realize that we can be learning from everybody and we all have value to bring to the table. I thought that was pretty neat too. Yeah. That's so cool. Uh, It's such a, such a cool win and such a cool awareness, right? Because I mean, I'm not the expert in agriculture and agribusiness or leadership for that matter. And yet I, but what I am good is what I am good at is asking questions. Right. I'm good. I'm okay at listening. And so I put those two things together and I, and I run, I think this is about the 31st or 32nd interview that I've done for this podcast so far. I am intellectually further ahead hopefully the industry will be further ahead because hopefully people listen to it and they take some of these things that you're sharing and apply that to their day to day, you know, and it's, yeah, nobody's the expert in all the things, but can you be the one who brings the best out of the people around you? Right. That's cool. Great. Uh, great take to it. All right. Let's, uh, let's do a little speed round here. Who have you really admired over the course of your career? 
going to sound cheesy, but there's two. One is my mom. So my mom was a woman in engineering. She was one of two women who graduated in engineering from Cornell um, in the 70s. And she showed me that you know, she had four kids in five years, traveled internationally for her job and kicked butt as a software engineer. And she showed me that you can have a family and you can be career focused and don't let a male dominated world stop you. Awesome. Good. For and then you. my second one is my husband. So my husband pushes me. He is probably the hardest working person I know in today's world. And he pushes me to ask questions, think more critically and really give it my all. So those two. Cool. Love it. Great stuff. Uh, what book should everybody be listening to or, or reading these days? It's one that's been out for a while, but Radical Candor is one. I love feedback. I think that Radical Candor, they actually make fun of it on Silicon Valley, which is a hilarious show about tech startups. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a book about caring personally and challenging directly, being curious, inquisitive, and pushing for those best outcomes, and also pushing to make everyone around you the best that they can be. And so I think that's a great book. Good stuff. You got a lot going on. You got a little one at home. You guys got busy lives. How do you keep your energy up? Copious amounts of coffee um, is one, <laughs> but also doing what I love, right? It's really, it's very easy to let the bad moments or the the tough times kind of fade to the rear view when you are working in an industry or in a career that you love and that you feel like you're making a difference. And I've been fortunate that I've had a lot of those opportunities in my, my tenure in the industry and being able to do that now is something that feels really rewarding. And, you know, that and the coffee helps me keep going. Yeah. Right on. I love it. I love it. All right. Uh, we talked a lot about transparency early on. Let's talk a little bit about vulnerability here to bring it in for a landing. Where, where does vulner, vulnerability come in and being able to create a, an intentional work environment in your opinion? Yeah. You know, I think it was, I kind of shared as piece of advice, not being afraid to say what you don't know, or that you aren't an expert in a particular um, instance. And that was one thing that I did, even my interview process with Verdesian and, and coming in as a leader at the company of a team was saying, I told everybody, I am not an agronomic expert. If you want somebody who's going to recommend a nitrogen stabilizer with five other things, like I am not that person today. But what I am good at is X, Y, Z. And so to me, showing that vulnerability and, and being able to say, hey, I'm not great at these things or here are my shortcomings, but we can work on those together. Or if you feel like those are coachable and teachable, let's let's work on the other things together too. To me, that makes you really human and it it makes it really easy for your team to also open up with some of those things too. From a company standpoint, being vulnerable you know, when your executive leadership team is sharing, hey, we may have missed a quarter or, hey, this is why we decided to do this. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of companies do reduction in forces. And so, hey, here's here's why we have to do a riff, right? I don't know if companies do that. I, I, I don't know if that's always been that vulnerable. Here's how we got into this scenario. But I think when you do, it helps people understand a lot more and not feel like it is kind of this hammer down on these decisions that the board or the executive team are making, but they understand at a deeper level, they still might not, might not like it, but they at least understand. And that vulnerability, both from a personal standpoint, and I think from a company 
health or company direction standpoint are are really important for people to to see and to want to maintain kind of giving everything that they have to a company. Good thing. Wow. You are a wealth of knowledge and <laughs> resources. And or I just talk a lot. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but very well put together and, and very articulate as well. So you can talk as much as you want being as articulate as you are. So great job. And, and thank you for doing this. Thanks for sharing. Any any last thoughts that you'd like uh, like to leave with people? You know, I just think um, you mentioned something about mentorship, and I've been really fortunate to to have a, a few great mentors in my career and also network and meet people, you know, talk to people on planes, go to conferences and meet people and not be afraid to be alone at at a table and have somebody come up to you. And so um, with that, I will extend an offer. Anybody who wants to reach out to me, please feel free. Um, you know, I can make sure that my email is somewhere or I can say it, whatever is easier, but um, please find me, connect with me on LinkedIn. And I am happy to talk through anything deeper, share any of my experiences in more detail, or even just be a sounding board if you have questions or, or ideas. So always happy to kind of extend that to others too. Fantastic. That's great. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. I hope today's episode brought you a great deal of value about what it takes to lead life and lead in this industry with intention. If you want to go deeper on the topic of leading with intention, I encourage you to head on over to intentionaltoolbox.com and get the seven free tools that will help you to lead your life in all areas with a greater deal of intention. That's intentionaltoolbox.com. And finally, if if this message resonated today, if there's something in here that you got value from, I promise you there's someone else in your life who also would get value from this. So please share the episode, share the podcast, and make sure that you subscribe.